So my name is Johan Norberg and today is 23rd of May of 2018 and I'm here with a Brooklyn resident and World War II veteran Seymour Kaplan at his house for the R Streets R Stories project at the Brooklyn Public Library. So where were you born? In Brooklyn. Okay. Which area? Oh, around where Myrtleham and Broadway meet. It's the end of Williamsburg, the beginning of bedford Stuy. Okay, yeah. A beautiful neighborhood. Yeah. Very poor. Spoke Yiddish as easily as English to those of us in the street who understood it. But the years went, you know, the time went by and we became more English every day. When I went to public school, my, my main language was Yiddish. And in no time I was speaking English like everyone else. This was in the 1930s. Which year? Yes, in yeah. the 30s. Yeah. Early 30s. So how was the neighborhood at this time? Was it safe or was it... Uh... It was very safe. Yeah. It was uh, three different denominations primarily. There was Italian down the block, there were Jews in the middle of the block, and then way up the block or onto the next block, it was Irish. Okay. And each primarily hung out with their own although we had a nodding relationship with each other of the other groups. The Italian kids went, by and large, they went to public school. The Jewish kids went to public school. The Irish kids went to Catholic school. So we got to know the Italian kids a little better. The Irish kids we got to know a little better later on when we started playing ball together. There was always a little tension in between, but we kind of outgrew it as the years went by. You'd meet one of the Irish kids on the subway, you said, how are you? You know, going to school or going to work. You said, how are you? And he spoke and he's, and they say, well, do you know so-and-so? Sure, I know him. Uh, when you use public facilities, we got to know each other. Yeah. The adults looked out for the kids on the block. You couldn't have a fight without being broken up by an adult. Getting an argument, what's the matter with you kind of argument. Uh, we had big ball games in the street, big. There may have been 400 people in the street. And we used to bet on, bet on it. Somebody walked around taking bets okay. on who might win. It was for Sundays. It was wonderful. Yeah. It, you walked out Sunday, there was an event happening right in front of your house. Yeah. Tell me about your family. My father and mother came from... My mother came from the Ukraine. Okay. My father came from Vilna which was in the uh, Lithuanian section of Russia. Yeah. Sweetest people in the world. Never heard an off-color word from them. He got up at three o'clock every day and went to work and come back at three o'clock in the morning. He drove a taxi. Okay. We were five or six kids, depending on the year. We were, everybody was poor, everybody. If I tell you that my shoe had a flapping sole, you don't know what I'm talking about. But every kid of my generation knew that on cheap shoes, you wore out the sole and they began to flap. You had, when you walked, they would flap like a tongue on bottom. It was, wasn't uncommon. We made scooters out of orange crates, And some kids got bikes. I was not one of them. The kid that got a bike generously lent it to kids that didn't have a bike. Well, I'm telling you this part of it to show the heart that we had for each other. When we went to play ball, 
if you knew that the guy who was going to be the outfielder after you, if you knew he didn't have a baseball glove, you left yours there on the street. So when I came to pick it up, uh, Saturday or Sunday, we, we were not religious kids. We were not orthodox. Some kids more than others, but the community itself was not orthodox. Saturday and Sunday, we went to a movie. You met with five or six other kids and you walked to a movie together. You kind of planned it in the street, which movie you're going to see. There was a movie house in every neighborhood, a couple of movie houses with air conditioning. There were a few without air conditioning for those you paid a nickel to get in. And every week they changed the movie. And a typical uh, Sunday was you went to a movie, or Saturday or Sunday, you went to a movie and then you went to a deli and you had a sandwich and that was it, you had a big weekend. I don't know where else you want to go. There were trolley cars. Yeah, trolley cars. Yeah, of course. There were trolley cars and uh, we used to run after them, jump on the back and hold on to the line that connected the trolley car and then jump off where we wanted to go. Yeah. Listen, you saved a nickel. Yeah. Went to Coney Island the summer. My mother would give me 10 or 15 cents. With 15 cents, I had subway fare up and back to Coney Island, which was a nickel each way, unless I jumped onto a train and it was free, I had an extra nickel. And the, so out of 15 cents, 10 cents was for car fare, and the additional nickel, I could buy a hot dog with a soda for a nickel, if you knew the right cheap old places to go in Coney Island. Yeah. The girls brought sandwiches to the beach, so that when we got there, there were a million little picnics that you could enjoy. Yeah. It was a neighborhood event in a different neighborhood. Yeah. How was uh, going to school? Going to school was nice. Uh, you came out of the house, you looked around, you saw other kids walking, you joined. Yeah. And we walked. Uh, we walked and we skipped and we had fun and we threw a ball. Then you got to school, but always in a group. Okay. And and the groups weren't, they just happened. You start walking, somebody else walks. You know, early in the morning, it, you just got out of the house and the first thing you did is look around and see who's coming. Yeah. What, what fun you're going to have going there. Not that it was always fun, you know, when it rained you, you just had to put up with it. When it was freezing cold, you kept walking, that's all. But having a group to go with made it more social, obviously. Yeah. Okay, what else we got? Yeah, what did the neighborhood look like? Well, I don't know. This neighborhood was built in 1927. Yeah. So they had row houses. They had a lot of brick houses. Where I came from was tenements, brick houses, and we didn't have the uh, the wooden mansions that you see in Ditmas Park. Yeah. We had a lot of brownstones, brownstones, a lot of them, yeah. but, and a lot of tenements or apartment houses. Did you go to Manhattan sometimes, or did you hang around Brooklyn for the most part of the? Going to Manhattan was only for very special reasons. Okay. Uh, the adults, you know, they had great movie theaters there. Yeah. And the movie theaters also had live performances on stage. The big bands, Harry James, Benny Goodman, they performed in the movie houses. They'd stop the movie and the lights would go on Harry, James, and the curtain went up, and there was 
a tremendous orchestra with a leader who was legendary, Harry James, Benny Goodwin, Ziggy Elman, Elman, but they were live. So in the morning, it cost a quarter to see that. In the evening, it cost a lot more. And kids like me used to play hooky and get there. Their first show was, I think, about nine o'clock in the morning. We'd tell our parents we're going to school, and if we had the money, we went to see a show at the New York Paramount or the Brooklyn Fox yeah. or the Roxy. They were great movies, yeah. great movie theaters. And no one else. Uh, you had many siblings? I have two brothers and two sisters. Okay, yeah. My place in life was uh, far behind my brothers. My youngest brother was 11 years older than me. That means when I was uh, uh, seven, eight, he was already too old to be playing with me. Yeah. You know, it means he was 18, 19. I'm very uh, World War II oriented. People have been calling me over and over and over and over. So yeah, yeah. We knew what was happening in Europe. Yeah. We absolutely knew it. We knew that Jews were being killed. No fog about that. That was it, and we knew it in black and white. The movies coming out reflected it. Stories appearing in the newspapers reflecting it. And refugees were coming over, those who managed to get out. They were coming over and telling us about it on the street. Yeah. We'd hang around a street corner listening to some kid in Yiddish saying what happened to his parents. So there was no secret about it. We knew it, and many Jewish kids like myself couldn't wait to get into the war. Okay. You know, to hit back. Yeah. There were anti-Semites on radio. Father Coughlin. Okay. Of all things, Lindbergh, our national hero, came out as an anti-Semite. And living in a mixed neighborhood, as I did, had its problems. Yeah. Because your very friends that you were playing with were now calling you a kike. Right? And if you got into a fight with somebody, someplace Jew bastard came out. Came out. Uh, we knew it was there. And I can't say we tolerated it, but we just you got to accept the truth, it was there. Uh, and many of the Jewish kids wanted very much to get into service. Also, it was depression. In a household like mine, there wasn't enough money to feed the kids, it was very tough. When the war started happening, and Roosevelt uh, started a policy of lend-lease. We were making planes and ships and tanks for Russia and England, and maybe France, I don't know. But we started to get work here in America. So in about uh, the war in Europe, hit at 1939, and I think we were 37, 38, 39, we were doing, I'm not sure those are the correct dates, but at some point we started making war materials for our allies to be. And uh, doing more jobs. And a family like mine who had very little income at all now suddenly had uh, two working girls and uh, two of the boys were working and my father's business, you know, driving a cab started to become very good. So while we paid a terrible price for it, we were living better. And we were very patriotic. I can remember 
Roosevelt was re-elected, was elected four times. You know, it never happened in our history. We were not a divided country. Since then, we've been like 50-50 every election, 51-49. But this was sweepingly one mind, the country. And the opposition party to Roosevelt was very centrist. Not as extreme as it is now, the separation between the two. <clears throat> For the Jews, we were dem very democratic. One day playing ball in the street with my friends, my sister, who had a ground floor apartment, a street level apartment, saw us playing and came over to me and said, when you kids are ready, come on in, I'll have coffee and cookies for you. Because you know we wanted to watch a football game. I think it was Yankee Dodger football game. Okay. I know that sounds wrong, but in those days, Yankees and Dodgers did have a football team. Yeah. When the game came on, my sister came out and broke up a game. I remember her saying, come on in, come on in to her apartment. She's a sweetheart. So we went in, we sat down, and we were watching the football game on, on radio. Better than you saw it on TV. And they had those wonderful announcers, hey, he's on the 5, he's on the 15, down to the 20, 20 o'clock. The wonderful announcers that made you see every, you, you can see the sweat on a guy's head. And on this day, which was Sunday, December 7th, in the afternoon, on this day we heard, and he's on a 5, on a 15, down to the beep. We interrupt this program to announce that the Japanese have bombed Pearl Harbor. All military personnel report to your post immediately. All military officers report to your commanding officer immediately. Beep, 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 boop. And the world changed. The next day you didn't see a, a, a young man on a block. My brother went down to 90 Church Street and he joined the Marines on a Sunday, December, Sunday, December 7th or Monday. But before the end of the week, he was gone. He was in uniform. Bernie Hockheiser the same way, Davy Waters the same way, a lot of guys. Because remember, we were Jews who felt we were oppressed and we can fight back. There was a depression, and the kids who were running to join had nothing to do anyway. So there were a lot of factors that added to that. I don't mean that all kids were affected by the depression, but these factors were there. Being without a job in a family has no money gives you such a worthless feeling that the ability to join the army and do something of worth was very important. Uh, so the world changed. And I, I eat my heart out. I was too young to get into service. There were parades up and down the street. We used to hang big flags, banners, across the street from rooftop to rooftop. God bless our soldiers. God bless our men in uniform. And people came out every so often to march in the street. When you went to a movie, in some movies you had to bring an aluminum pot because the army needed aluminum for airplanes, we were told. I mean, the services. So the movies got involved in it. When he came into the movie, the first thing that happened is all the lights went on, somebody came out on stage and said, we're having a war bond drive, the girl walk amongst you all, you can buy our war bonds. 
and uh, the country mobilized, uh, certainly with arms militarily, but also the mind of the American changed, and we became a war status nation. We felt so glad to be Americans. It was so, we were so patriotic. We just knew that we were free and the rest of the world wasn't. Someplace we lost that, but those were golden, golden years from that point of view of understanding where we were. Then kids put a blue star on a window when a guy went into service. You came in, you saw a little flag with three blue stars. Somebody had three kids in service. You saw a gold star, somebody got killed in service. You enlisted, but you were only 17 years old. Not even. Okay. But by the time I got to be 17, I joined. Yeah. My mother objected, but I joined. Yeah. And uh, I don't even went to, I went to a camp in New Jersey first. I'm not remembering the names of them. I went to a camp in New Jersey, then one a little further south. I forget all names. Then I went to Florida, Camp Landing, Florida, and I took my basic training as an infantry soldier. I was supposed to go to Camp Blanding for paratroop training. I had signed up for that, but we took a big loss and they canceled that training thing and they put us right into the army and sent us to Europe in no time. Okay. So I got to go on because now I'm out of Brooklyn. You want me to take you to Europe now? Yeah, of course. You, you went from Brooklyn to Europe? Uh, I went from Brooklyn to Camp Blanding, Florida. Okay. Where I took my basic training. Yeah. I was given a leave to come back and I came back to New York. Then I, I don't remember how it happened, but I remember one night there was a, a camp, uh, I'm not pulling it out. I had a report back to a camp here in New Jersey and then they bust us back to Brooklyn. Okay. There's a harbor on Columbia Street in Brooklyn where the ship was waiting to take us to Europe, the SS Brazil. It was an old cruise ship that was meant to entertain 500 in luxury. We were over 2,000 kids on that ship. If we all sneezed at the same time, there would be no more ship. <laughs> but the bus, an army vehicle dropped us off. I didn't know where we were. We came from, came back from this camp in New Jersey to Brooklyn, a couple of hours ride. Then we were told to get out. We didn't have guns yet. We were told to get out. We all lined up. Red Cross gave us the coffee and Donuts, the iconic coffee and donuts, and we stood there, and this was Brooklyn. Yeah. And my house was not far away, but I stood there until somebody blew a whistle and pointed, and we went up, and I remember hearing the boots in front of me and the boots behind me marching up that gangplank. And I remember we received a bed for one night out of three. Have you heard of that before? Yeah, yeah, I think I have. It's yeah. called triple birth. Yeah. <laughs> In other words, one bed was for three guys. One had it, one, every third day you got it. The other two nights we slept out on deck and managed. Yeah. Not a hardship, just an oddity. Yeah. Uh, and where the weather was no good, we slept in a big toilet that they have 
there was places where we could put our stuff if we had to go indoors. It was a luxury ship, so they had uh, some of that stuff. And then we got to Europe. We got to where Normandy was. We had already invaded Normandy. Okay, yeah. And when we got to the beachhead, what was left there was the debris of a terrible fight. And we came out on that. And there were vehicles waiting to take us past it. And we saw the debris of tanks rolled over. I'll never forget an ambulance rolled over. That struck me as so terrible. Yeah. Uh, no bodies. It was clean from that point of view. And they took us to another town, and for the life of me, I can't remember what other town it was. It was a French town. We got in there, and we walked into a big building like an industrial park. You know the buildings we have here? The industrial buildings? Big buildings like that. It may have been an industrial park because it was near the waterfront. And we sat there and we were being mobilized by the prepared speakers. One captain who said to us, kids, watch out for yourselves. Nobody else is going to do it. Up until now, you had somebody looking after you. Now you're on your own. And he let us know. And then they gave us our guns for the first time. After training, for the first time, we got our gun. In training, there was, they gave you guns, but it wasn't yours. This was our gun. And it was, there was grease all over it called Cosmoline. And we were sitting around cleaning it off and learning to take care of it. We were just hanging around, fixing it, and guys making speeches. And that night, there was a big mess outside. It was Bed Check Charlie. It wasn't quite dark. But there was a German reconnaissance plane that came over and everybody who had a working weapon started shooting at it and nobody got it. It was a Piper Cub. I think we were told not to shoot at it anymore. It was a Piper, whatever. And uh, then the next day or maybe two days, we were put on a train of 40 and 8. Do you know what a 40 and 8 is? No. It's a World War One expression, okay. but they still use it in World War Two. It was a, a railroad car that carried 40 men or 8 horses. Okay. 40 on, 8, how do you say horses, Chevrolet? It was 40 men or eight horses. And we got on that, we jammed into that. And that was pleasant because it's better than marching. And uh, we kept the door open, otherwise if you had to urinate, you had a problem. And we learned you don't urinate in the wind. Uh, so it, that itself was an experience. And every now and then the train would stop and everybody would scoot off. And we would have food handed out to us. And the train would continue. If you stop too long, you're liable to get hit. We didn't know about that yet because we were not yet combat soldiers. And then I came to some place in Germany getting through France. It's funny, some days you were in Germany and some days you were in France. If we came to a place in, in Germany where my outfit was stationed that I, they assigned me to the 692 DDs. There's the map of it over there if you want to look at it. Okay. On the floor. Oh, yeah. Go take a look at it. Bring it over, I'll discuss some stuff with you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just let me show you this. Yeah. 
Okay, company C. C company. So here you can see the roots. Yes, this was the root. I came in here. And I joined up with the 6-9 deuce here. Okay. Here's where Roosevelt, here's where we were when Roosevelt was killed. Okay. You know how I found out Roosevelt was killed? No. A German soldier told me. Oh, a German soldier, yeah. He was standing on top of uh, an outpost and he was an enemy. Okay. He hollered, hey, Roosevelt coat. Now it was around here. I know I crossed the Rhine twice. Yeah. And, and it was around here that I joined my outfit. Ach, and they just came back from a battle here. I think I joined them here. And all the rest of this was combat. So you went all the way from France into Belgium and then into Germany. To I, never, called I never knew where I was. No, okay. 17 year old soldier doesn't know anything. No, no. And this is who we fought with. Someplace along the line, we gave support to all of these outfits. Okay. Mainly this one. Everyone has uh, their own symbol. Patch. Yeah, the patch. I'll show you one of these. Yeah, patches. yeah. I have this patch if you want to see it. I'll yeah, that's a uh, <laughs> great looking. Symbol. I have it on my car. Yeah. I was very proud of it. Wonderful man. Yeah. On the Liberty ship William Few. And we got off him. Oh, Jesus. I didn't even know this was here. Yeah, so anyway, we got back on a boat here. Yeah, And we sailed off. Yeah. These are the killed in battle. You were in a lot of places in Germany. You were in Nuremberg, you were in Munich. Well, Nuremberg, yeah. I saw the, the building that's always in the news, the one that had the uh, the eagle on it with a yeah. swastika. Yeah. I saw the guys pulling it down. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, there was a place, I'm dying to find out where it was. I should get. I have to find out when Passover of 1945 occurred. Okay. Then I can look it up and find out where we were. Because we were fully engaged in, in uh, combat. And a, uh, a religious officer, what do they call him? He was a Catholic priest. Okay. But that's not what we called him. Anyway, he was a Catholic priest in uniform under a different name, a military name. But he came over to him and said, you, any of you guys Jews? We said, what the hell is this? He said, hey man, I'm looking for Jews. I need a couple of Jews. Raised my hand a couple of them. He bust us over. He stopped the bus and he loaded us on. He told the bus, you know, this wasn't a city bus. This was a transportation bus that had uh, combat headlights on it. He stopped the bus and he shoved us on it and he brought us over to a field in France. So France and Germany were connected, or maybe this was Germany, I still don't know it, that's why I yeah. want to look it up. Yeah. But we got out and he said, uh, this is Passover. We didn't even know it. No. He said, this is today's Passover, and we're going to have us a Seder, which means a Passover uh, observance. Okay. He said, we're going to have us a Seder with whatever we got, and it's going to be very significant, significant because this will be the first Seder on this grounds of a burnt-out Jewish church. Didn't know a better word since the war started. That this was closed down, it was very touching. Yeah. Because the Jewish kids that were there, we expected something because why would he ask for just Jews? The army never did that. 
and the other guys who were there must have known something about it too. It was very touching. Here was a Catholic priest in full army uniform saying the prayers in Hebrew. He was ready for it. And he gave us a little history, which my head didn't, to this day, I never got it back. But he said it, and he told us, uh, I think every soul in that synagogue was destroyed. And he told us about it, and he said, you'll look up to God, and you'll tell him just how you feel, and it's private. And he made that little speech, and it, meant more to me afterwards than it did when I was living through it, but it, it's wor it had started to work on me. Yeah. And every time I try, I mean, this is 50, 60, 70 years later, yeah. every time I try to mobilize myself to get going and find out where that town was, I get a little too close to it and uh, yeah. it still has some heat in it. Yeah. But this is a treasure, this map. Yeah, yeah, of course. So what is this? That's from Birch's Garden. You know what Birch's Garden is? Is it uh, Hitler's... Uh, isn't it something by the eagle nest? The that, eagle's nest. Yeah. <laughs> it was his home. It's from the eagle's nest. It came right out of Hitler's home. Okay. I took it. When we heard that the 101st took Birch's Garden, the 101st Airborne. Yeah. We heard they took Burgess Garden, and we were just hanging around, you know. We were no longer in combat. There was already a cessation of hostilities, which is not the end of the war. Mm. It's just that both sides said, don't shoot. And a lot of shooting happened. But when I walked, when I came to when I heard that they took Burgess Garden 17 years old, I was saying, let's go see it. We got other guys. And finally, one German soldier knew how to get there. Okay. So he said, give me a Jeep. I'll take it And About seven of us went. Yeah. When I got there, they wouldn't, uh, they, the, uh, one of the s soldiers from the 101st held a rifle, wouldn't let us in. And we started talking, say, come on, you know, we're combat soldiers like you, we're kids, we were all the way over here from Brooklyn, I can't take a look inside, and we got them to, as soon as I walked in, I saw this standing on this type of table. Yeah, yeah. I knew, I said, Mama, I know I gotta bring you something. <laughs> I put my helmet on it, yeah. and he took us around, and when I got done, I took my helmet back, I said, thank you, sir. And I got it home. Yeah. So what is this? It's a... Um, it's silver plate. Silver plate. On Hitler's, in Burgess Garden, yeah. they had a hotel. When a general came to visit Hitler, he usually brought about 100 men with him. And he kept his own staff of about 60 men with him in Hitler's home, Burgess Garden. But his general, the rest of them, they went into the other hotel, okay. some plot. Yeah. I have that information here. Yeah. There was a hotel on Hitler's ground called the Platterhof. Yeah. They had, this was their serving set. Okay. Yeah. And that was the hallmark, which is this. So this is actually a silver service bowl that they have used in, in the hotel where That Hitler was Hitler's yeah, bowl. Yeah, that's, I believe that's, that <laughs> one was for calling cards. Yeah. So when somebody came in, the, the European star was to come in with calling cards, printed cards with their name on it. Yeah. I didn't know they then took them back. No. <laughs> but they dropped their card in there and then the servant or a military man wouldn't even have to speak to them. They'd just pick up the card and say, Herr Staubel, yeah, go man. So you had a camera with you? I picked up a camera later on, but okay. most of the pictures I didn't take. Okay. There's the tough kids. <laughs> um. 
And you look really young. We were all kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were 20, I was only 17. Yeah. But here's my gun. I stood in that circle. So this, this gun is on top of a vehicle? Yes, I'll show yeah. that to you. See this vehicle? I think it was an M3. Okay. It was an armored vehicle. It was a recon vehicle, but we used it for combat. Yeah. It was fast for the armor that it carried, and it was armored. So that a machine gun or a uh, or rifle or handgun couldn't hurt it. Okay. They can rip the tires off it. But when you're standing at the machine gun, you're you have no you have no cover. You're the first <laughs> you're one who noticed that. Yeah. Funny thing, when I uh, got there and they they made me the machine gunner. Yeah. Because I had supposedly had heavy weapons training. Yeah. They made me this machine gunner and they took a guide, the bias, who was with the outfit from the beginning. And they made him my assistant gunner. And now I know you know, I didn't know why, but the reason was he didn't want to stand up there anymore. No. Where no that was not a good job. <laughs> yeah. Good job. Is German surrendering? Okay. This was a vehicle that tried to smash through our checkpoint. And here's were the tanks that we were escorting. They were our tanks from our company. Okay, yeah. Yeah, this is from my camera. Somebody took the pictures. The upper left is a raid we made. This is immediately after the war. We heard that there was a, a, some German soldiers hiding out on a farm, so we rushed over there, and we got them. Hmm. Here was a town, Firth. Prisoners, oh God, there were so many prisoners. Yeah. Here were the German prisoners coming to surrender. Yeah. Here were two tough, nasty sons of bitches. Okay. Is it German soldiers? Yes. Yeah. So you could talk to the German soldiers a bit because you had the... I English, could do a little. Yeah. They always made the same mistake. Yeah. They would all say to me, if not for the Jews, the Germans and the Americans would be the best friends. Oh. I said, yeah? Yeah. No shit. Hmm. Please be very careful with this. Okay, is this a German identification? Does that look like it came out of uh, Hollywood? Yeah. Actually, it does. This is his sold book. Okay. This guy had a very nasty, nasty history. Yeah. I had to turn him over. I would much rather have killed him. But we were told, when you got somebody with the goods on them, turn them over. And I brought them to a place called Bad Obling, which was a, a, a staging area for German prisoners. Millions of them were surrendering. And it was dangerous, because you could be on a field, three American soldiers with a you know, yeah. 200,000 prisoners, they're grabbing you, disappear, nobody will see you again. Yeah. I'm talking about immediately after the arrests. Not arrests, they came, they gave themselves up. Yeah. I once made a wrong turn. I was with a group of guys and we made a wrong turn. We picked up 60 prisoners who came over to us, please take us in. How long was your Europe stay? You you came in the beginning of 1945? No, no, no. I came late in the war. Okay, yeah. And I was a 
but I stayed in Europe until July of '46. Okay, you were you were. I was part were. of the occupation force. Yeah. And we did a lot of work. Yeah. Because there was a, they said there was a whole German division that ran off into the Alps, and we had to go chase them, which we did for a while. Yeah. And we were always on a lookout to see the two guys that I had standing yeah, there, yeah. vicious, vicious guys. We did a lot of uh, occupational work. Yeah. Yeah, these guys. Yeah. They were officers, and they were in uh, Vermont clothing and regular soldiers' clothing. Hmm. Okay, they tried to hide. Well, they're the only ones you'll see with their hands up. Yeah. The rest surrendered. We treated them like human beings. Yeah. But here we were told by other Germans, watch out for them. Okay. They're not what they look like. It's in the nicks. Those were our tanks. And this is me coming into Munich. Ba 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 boom. This is Radio Luxembourg. As we came in, you could hear the American broadcast, the Allied military government, saying, this is Radio, well, in German, boom, this is Radio Luxembourg. In 10 minutes, comes the American soldier. Boom, In 14 minutes, comes the American soldier. And they gave instructions, a white flag has to hang out. All weapons have to be stacked in front of the house that, to which they belonged. They will be picked up by American soldiers. Anybody caught with a weapon will be shot. Yeah. In the camp, in the camp, yeah. in, in Dachau, there was a little old lady, maybe she wasn't old, but maybe after two years in the camp, she just looked old. I knew she was Jewish, or I believe she was, and she was. And I wanted to tell her that I'm a Jewish boy, I'm an American soldier, you don't have to be afraid of me. Ich bin ein Jüdischer Jing and ich bin ein Amerikanischer Soldat. Dabs kein Angst, nichts habe Mama. And I went to pat her head and she shied away from me, scared me. And I looked at her, she was filled with horror. And everything changed. You know, all the compassion I had for I suddenly had fear of her. And, uh, you never saw anything like that. Mm. And she started to scream. And when I started to hear what she was saying, she's saying, where's my family? And she took this out of her garment. This is not the original. It's a picture of the original. Okay, yeah. Okay, so what's this? It's a real mean-looking big mean. knife. In the camp, yeah. the camp officers, that's how they walked around. Yeah. This in this hand and holding this. In Dachau? In Dachau. Okay. They were afraid to have a weapon on them. They were afraid to have a gun on them in this particular yeah. area because then 50 Jews could knock that gun out of him and he stuck. So they walked around like this. They showed a shovel and sheaths of wheat. Okay. As if this was a little farmland they were going to. There was, you know, Boy Scouts in the camp. Yeah. But actually, feel that. Yeah, really, really sharp knife. Really sharp. And it was made to keep people in line. Uh, it says something on the... Arbeit adult. Okay. The pride of labor. They like to slice women's tits with these and yeah. laugh. And say, don't worry, you won't be needing them soon. I've had them... I can't tell you how many women told me that. No. Love to slice their ass as they fell into line, give them a slice. It opened their garment, it exposed them, and it was a joke to them. I took this off. The room I was in was filled with death. 
laying on the floor. You couldn't walk from here to here without stepping on a corpse or a soon-to-be corpse's fingers. They were just laying there like the carpeting. It was a horror. Yeah. You could not believe. And when you're in a room filled with dead people, they talk to you. Right. I said to this guy, what did you do? What did you people do? He said to me, Als Juden, they're all Jews. And I said to him, Ich auch. Aber ich bin ein Jude mit einem Gewehr. Haben Sie ein Gewehr? Some of you with a gun. Do you have a gun now? He says, no. I said, ah, so everything is different. This is what he had. I unhooked it from him. I got the belt, his belt someplace. Is this a belt buckle? Yeah. It's an eagle holding a swastika. In the camp, in Dachau. Yeah. Where the old lady was. I heard that they had the ovens. I didn't know what that meant. No. Some guys did. So a whole, everybody started rushing up towards the ovens. They always pushed me in first because I could interpret for them. Yeah, yeah. So when I got there, they made room for me. And they said, was hast du passiert? What happened here? And he explained that the killing rate was so fast that they could not dispose of the bodies. That the most efficient way was to burn them and let them go up and smoke. Did we let them go up? Uh, and uh, he explained the operation to my officer through me. He said, you know, they would bring me the bodies, and then these two Jews, the, what they called capos, were responsible to put them in the oven. And uh, then all we had left was ashes. It was astounding to hear that firsthand. Astounding. And you look at the floor, and there's ashes all over the floor, and you wonder. I pick some up. I say, who am I, who, who is this? Who am I holding in my hand? How many? Who am I stepping on? You go crazy. The little capo, the man who was putting the bodies in the oven, said, my nagin of old built me for hocket and my own people want to kill me. He said, who did I hurt? They came to me, they were dead. You couldn't hurt them anymore. I put them in the oven, dead people. I didn't hurt them, they were beyond it. And he was scared to death that the Americans would shoot him right now. There was a lot of that going on, by the way. They're afraid they get shot on the spot. He said, I lived this long because I did what I had to do to be alive. Don't judge me by it. And he gave this to me. No, he didn't. He said he, they had very loose fitting gowns. He reached underneath and he pulled this out on a string. He had it hanging here. And he said, everyone that I put into the oven, I made a religious service for. We went to, everybody knew if they can get me any liquid, I saved it to make a religious service for. And he pulled out a little funny thing that he was keeping liquid in. And he told me the prayers that he made, the Leviathan, and the other prayers 
They were very touching to me. I knew what they meant. And then all of a sudden we had to break it up because another unit was passing through and I lost this guy. Okay. But I had the cup in my hand. Same way as the picture that I had of a family. Yeah. I had it in my hand. Hmm. And I kept it all these years. When I told the group of rabbis last year, sitting right here, when I told the group of rabbis around this, they say I have to give it to them. Not that I should, I have to. That they believe this little vessel carries thousands of souls. Hmm. And that if I give it to them, proper prayers will be said over us daily so that their souls can rest. I can't even talk about it. Yeah, yeah. But I can't give it up. No. Now this is a copy of an actual thing that I have in a bag. Okay. Oh. <laughs> this is a German to English dictionary, okay. or an English to German dictionary. And I'll tell you the most interesting thing about this is it has a lot of useful words and phrases, except one. Put your hands up. <laughs> Which we needed someone. We this the southern kids, you know. Yeah. So, they would say, put yeah. up your fucking hands. Jonah was saying nothing. Put up your hands. And the German soldiers say, Bosh. Yeah. Then when I came I was in to say, Hunt over the cup. Hands over the head. Did you understand that? Hunt yeah, yeah. Yeah, well this is where I got my little German. I have the actual book. That's a the uh, Holocaust Museum made a copy of it for me. Okay. Hey. Okay, there it is. The patch. Yeah. The patch. Yeah. You ever see a cannon fire? Oh, okay. That's the actual firing yeah. of the cannon. Yeah. Some guy stood behind it. Here's the impact. That was my my uh, camera. Yeah. Okay. My camera. I just picked it up from an officer that we took. Yeah. Dead bodies lying on the ground. Yeah. I was a machine gunner. Yeah. And that's what happens to you when they attack a machine gunner. Yeah. Here are prayer books that the army gave me. Okay. In Hebrew and in English. I found this button in a German prisoner's pocket. Okay, it's a U.S. Uh, Wanted to kill him. Yeah, yeah. So I walked up and I to ask. Yeah. The God, whose pocket did you find this in? And he brought me to some German kid in a uniform. I said, what are you doing with this? Hmm. He said, I gave him my button. He gave me his button. Kids. Yeah. I always, always remember that, no matter how bad it looks. Yeah. Look for the explanation. Yeah, yeah, of course. Every time I pulled in an officer, I cut something off his uniform. Okay, so here we have the, the German Iron Cross. Hmm, 1939, the start of. That start means of that the that war. guy was there at the start of the war. Yeah. Okay, I think that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for showing me everything. When I speak, yeah, I put this stuff out on the table. Yeah. I want people to make the connection. Yeah. This is nice, but this stuff seems to reach them better. Yeah. This is a little too dramatic to be understood. So, how was it for you coming back to Brooklyn after, after being in the war? 
Well, we got on the uh, USS William Few. It was an old freighter. It was disgusting. Yeah. But the food was remarkably good. I remember us all talking about that. And we didn't feel like we were going to war anymore. We felt like we were, we were being celebrated. It was a funny feeling. Yeah. We got into Boston Harbor. They were playing, going to take a sentimental journey, sentimental journey home. And we, the whole ship broke out into singing. They ran water hoses that run red, white, and blue. There was a ship that came out to meet us with movie stars on a, on a stage on top of the ship singing to us. And we realized we're home. Yeah. That's when we realized the party's over. When I came back to Brooklyn, I met many friends, you know, who haven't seen, I saw my brother. I had some experience with my brother. I got into Boston Harbor. My brother was a Marine. Big, tough Marine. Yeah. I got on a phone and I called his barracks, which was in Boston, not far from where we were. And I told him, my brother's a sergeant, I just came in from uh, Europe. My brother's a sergeant, can you find him? And the girl said to me, mister, there's thousands of Marines here. So I was teasing, I said, well, one guy looks like my brother, right? And sure enough, I got a call back. She said, I think you got him, should be hearing from him. <laughs> anyway, I never heard from him that night or in that call. So I told her, listen, they're turning the lights out here. Tell him that his kid brother is in whatever the camp was in Boston and I'm on barracks number so-and-so, this is how he could find me. Two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, my brother came in with two other Marines. You know, Marines wore these very distinctive uniforms. Yeah. So he came in, and he's looking for me in his, you know, 500 guys sleeping in one room. You know, a big deck. He wakes a guy, said, I'm looking for Sergeant Kaplan, somebody who knew me each time, because we knew each other. Wakes up, he sees two Marines and three MPs. I don't know. Don't know where he is. They thought I was being arrested. <laughs> Finally, he woke a friend of mine, George Averill Crane, and he said, I'm looking for Sergeant Seymour Kaplan. And my friend said to him, your name Mac? He said, yeah. He said, that's him. He said, no, I just looked at him, that's not him. He said, that's him. We hadn't seen each other in 40. Yeah. <laughs> I was 15 the last yeah. time you saw me. And I, because I was busy calling him, I couldn't get a prime bunk, so I had a sleep underneath the lamp, which I shut off by hand. Okay. When he climbed up, he turned it on to look at me. It wasn't me, he turned it <laughs> <laughs> oh. no. Now, I should tell you that I have uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. And one of the symptoms of that is your memory of some of the incidents are like they happened yesterday. Okay. And some not. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, you got on with your life and you became a teacher eventually. No, I became a ladies' garment manufacturer. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I took a job in a garment center and uh, I had no education, but I made a living out of it and uh, my boss gave the business to me. I made a living out of it. Could I ask you one uh, 
ending question. <laughs> Johan, whatever you want. Yeah, okay. I, I usually ask people that I'm doing interviews with if they have any advice for future generations. So do you have any advice for future generations? Zero tolerance for unlawful acts. Zero. Because it always starts with one. And then if the perpetrator gets away with that, they're going to build a whole system of government around an unlawful act. You must get truth from your leaders. Because if they don't give you the truth, they'll hide dreadful things from you. The Germans were human beings and they did dreadful things. Therefore, simply by an algebraic formula, we can say that human beings can do dreadful things. Just algebra. Germans equal human beings did dreadful things. Germans equal human beings mean one can be substituted for the other. Human beings can do dreadful things. If unrestricted. Right? Zero tolerance for racial prejudice. Zero. Because God knows we did it with the Indians. We're not, our hands are not clean. We did it with the Indians. You just had Puerto Rico suffering terrible, terrible, terrible consequences. And we haven't done a thing for them. Puerto Rico, our own, our own piece of property. In the meanwhile, a guy like Pruitt, one of our own secretaries, is flying around just for fun and spending all kinds of money just for his own comfort. So people are not trustworthy without the law. The law must be enforced. Well, it depends. It depends. And the Nuremberg law has to be understood a little better. When your officer says, shoot him, you have to have something to say about that. You have to be able to say why. Because your officer may be a bad guy. You know, there's a lot to work out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, keep your eye on your government. Yeah. There's no excuse for not doing the right thing. No. And everybody knows what the right thing is. Okay, so thank you so much for sharing everything with us. It's been a pleasure listening My to your pleasure. life story. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, champ.